You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends, and welcome. I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time listening, I want to give a special welcome to you. Today, my guest is Brian Roundtree. Brian is a dentist from Thibodeau, Louisiana. He's been a friend of mine for over 30 years. First, Brian is one of those who has a steel trap in his noggin. (laughs) He is a smart dude. He remembers everything. And that is certainly a strong indicator of intelligence, right? When somebody has a, a great memory. I would go further than that and say that a great memory is sort of a prerequisite for being a great storyteller. And you'll notice on the podcast that Brian has that skill set too. And for those reasons, I was comfortable in this interview asking him to go all the way back to 1990 because I knew that he would remember specific instances from when we were 10, 11, 12 years old. And he does. He remembers in vivid detail things that we went through at that age, things that I went through, the struggles that I was going through at that age. Uh, but the day we recorded, man, that, it's exactly what I talk about in terms of time wealth over riches over being a billionaire because imagine you're in your 30s you can take the entire afternoon go have barbecue with your buddy and just sit there and shoot the shit for four hours and record a podcast it doesn't get better than that folks that's what this podcast is about getting you to financial independence living a bigger life getting to do what it is that you want to do with your time If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I had Tom Abadie on the podcast. The episode was called Wise Words from the Best Coach I Ever Had. Well, Brian was on that team with me. So he tells a few stories from those days. Uh, One in particular, the other team had a point guard who was a true floor general, always running his mouth, telling people where to go. And he's still running his mouth today. He He played in the NFL for 13 years, and now he's an analyst on ESPN. So Brian's got some great stories about him. And then we take a turn for the, for the somber. I asked Brian about the moment he discovered something abnormal in the mirror one night, which turned out to be cancer. So he gets emotional telling the story. And one reason why is because he didn't want to have to tell his kids that he was sick. But he knew that if he lost his hair, that he would have to tell them. And that's what was expected. But Brian's a survivor. He's a tough MF. And the more I learned about his fight against cancer, the more I res- respect I gained for him and how he conducts his life. He's a great dad. He's a very successful dentist, great husband. So we talk about a lot, as you can imagine. Uh, we talk about personal finance, of course. I ask when he plans to retire and how he's going to get there. We talk about how in your 20s is the height of mating strategy and sexual strategy, sexual selection. So we talk about getting a reputation as Mr. Steal Your Girl. (laughs) The masks come off on this podcast. You know that. We're candid. So I ask about a little scandal that he was a part of when he and his wife got together and me being cheated on in my 20s and hypergamy. I mean, we really get into it. So as Russell Brand would say, some guys have a right flavor for the birds. I think he and I probably do. And we talk about that. So by the way, Brian told me after we stopped recording, he didn't in fact lose his hair. The oncologist said that he was only the second 
patient in 25 years of practicing medicine that he had seen that did not lose his hair. Pretty incredible. One last thing before I bring Brian on. Today is Friday, April 10th. If you are entering to win a $200 Rouse's gift card on Instagram, you need to log on to at man underscore overseas. Go to my page, enter to win. We'll be doing more giveaways in the future, and we will probably save the handles who have registered to win for future giveaways. So without saying further ado, let me bring on Dr. Brian Roundtree. Brian, or Tree, as you are known in these parts, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Thank you, Bradley. Happy to be here. I thought we would start with our childhood. I remember when your family moved across the street. Let me tell you what that felt like for me. You know when you're kids and you divide up teams and you're a captain <laughs> and each of you gets to choose a player? Once everybody has picked, there's always a, has been picked, there's always a straggler that comes up. And whoever is short a person usually gets that player on the team. Well, you moving to the neighborhood felt like I was getting that player. Like, I get the, he's good. I get him. There's always going to be somebody to play with. Sure thing. It, it was just a great feeling. You, you must have been, what, 10 years old? Yeah, you were spot on. I moved, uh, I moved into your neighborhood when I was 10. And uh, we lived there a couple years until I was 12. And, of course, during those years was some of our fondest memories with Bitty Basketball. Uh, playing from the ages, you know, together from 8 to 12. But but we, we experienced most of our success uh, at the latter end, as you know, with the culmination of winning it all at 12. But it's more than that. It's, it's about how, you know, you get home from school on a school day. And I was always one of the ones that would try and knock out my homework while I was at school. <laughs> so when I got home, uh, the school bag hit the floor, and I was off and running. And uh, we played year-round, you name it everything until either mom was calling me for supper or the sun went down one of those two those those were some of the best times ever right there it doesn't matter what sport we were in yeah give me five thousand neighborhoods in the united states where i can grow up and i'm choosing to grow up in that neighborhood absolutely it was that good it was and 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 it was kind of an extension of the of the neighborhood uh we like to call it the west side of town where we had some of our other closer teammates that lived just a few streets down from the actual neighborhood but it was a simple pedal away <laughs> and uh we always seemed to to conjure together there and partake in whatever sports season it was yeah, there was always somebody to play with, usually multiple kids. You could always make teams. Most of the guys were considerably older than us, which I think helped with our development no and doubt. made us better. No doubt. The guy-to-girl ratio was like 20 to 0, yep. which uh, which I think was helpful. Maybe 20 to 1, your sister. But she <laughs> was so good at sports that she was included on the teams. That's right. Times. Sometimes she would, she would play in in basketball. And whether it was the summertime in Nurkey or just riding bikes or – Catching eels in the ditches <laughs> on Lee Drive after a flood. But, uh, you know, talking about Biddy and all that and, and, and the time that we spent together where it was Dixie Baseball or, or, or Biddy All-Stars. And, and as mentioned previously, that was some of my uh, fondest memories as a child, for sure, uh, with sports. You know, I remember, like I mentioned, the 12-year-old year that we played and, and we won it all and uh, having, having the experience we had. And that was kind of the conclusion of, of our five years together. And little did we know at that point that, that you'd be heading out to Texas and, and not being with us for high school. But um, that was a good way to kind of go out, if you will. One of your previous podcasts, you had the, you had the pleasure of, of interviewing and, and speaking with Coach Tom Abadie, who was our coach on that team, uh, along with my dad and a couple others. The relationships that we made in those years certainly have carried through throughout my life. 
and seeing you today when you when you showed up here at my dental office it was kind of like we picked up right where we left off very easy yeah and it's like a brotherhood the connections we made i mean i, I was proud of you i wanted to take us a, a picture of the sign with you outside <laughs> saying brian roundtree dds <laughs> awesome yeah I've talked about some of the benefit that I've gotten from those days on on that team playing for Coach Tom and playing with guys like you, but what did you most take away from that experience that has helped you to be successful in life? You know, I if I had to just give one word to those years, I, I would say discipline. And most kids wouldn't say that about their years in childhood sports uh, and I think it starts at the top with coach Tom and the way that he ran our practices and what was expected of us um, we were a little ahead emotionally than most of the kids our age and mentally because of the way that he that he coached us and the expectations we had and that was sort of a platform that I was able to use along with my parents and other you know influential members that I looked up to uh, just in my days in school in all aspects of my life so if I had to look back, I would I would say for sure the discipline that he taught us. Yeah, discipline, fundamentals, consistency, showing up every day. Accountability. Accountability. We were so unselfish. Were you a little intimidated by Coach Tom back then? Absolutely. I was too. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't and, think I told him that. And I don't even know if I ever told him that yet, <laughs> but I, I'm sure he knows it in the back of his mind, and I he'd be the so. first to say that, nah, y'all wasn't intimidated by me, but he, so, he knows. One of the guys we used to play against was Ryan Clark, former LSU Tiger and Pittsburgh Steeler. My brother actually ran into him in an airport recently, but do you remember playing against him? Absolutely. H have vivid memories of, of the JPRD West team that was our nemesis. For the listeners out there, we actually, our 12-year year, had played them four times previously in invitational tournaments leading up to the World Tournament, and we were 0-4 against them. And in, in the World Tournament, we... Won our opening game against a team from Puerto Rico that, Bradley, you actually dribbled across the court in five seconds and made the winning layup in overtime uh, for us to go ahead and advance to play JPRD West. And in the second round, we actually beat them on the fifth try. And thank God we never had to see them again in that tournament. They went into the loser's bracket and ended up not making it all the way back. But that was an experience there that um, I'll fast forward my days at LSU we played intramural basketball, and we we were we were never really gifted with height. <laughs> um, so me and uh, a few of our teammates got together, and we made a six foot and under team in basketball and intramurals. And needless to say, as competitive as we were, we went ahead and won the whole division in the six foot and under at LSU. Whereas in the open division. All the talented football players like Ryan Clark and Rohan Davey and Robert Royal, all these guys that went on to play in the NFL, went ahead and just cakewalked through the open division. So the intramural director at LSU thought it'd be comical if we played against them in just an exhibition game. Well, they weren't worried about us. It's not like they were watching us all year. We were in an inferior bracket. So we get out there to play them, and we walk on the court, and Ryan starts looking around, and the first thing that draws his attention is Jason and Jared Cox, because they're identical twins, and Brett Bolello, and he looks at me, and he looks at Jacob Lusky, and he starts shaking his head, and he's like, not Thibodeau again. <laughs> <laughs> so we thought that was pretty cool. Needless to say, they beat us by about 30 in that exhibition game with probably 30-plus dunks. Uh, but it was, it was good. It was kind of... It made us laugh and, and just reflect a little bit back on those days as, as our 12-year-old bitty basketball years. 
Did he run his mouth, Clark, as much as he did when we were twelve? Yeah, I think he's still talking, and which is why, which is why ESPN picked him up, <laughs> for sure. So I want to switch to something you went through quite recently with your health. You're a cancer survivor. Uh, what sort of symptoms were you having that led you to visit the doctor in the first place? Sure. This was in the fall of 2017. Uh, it was around August. And I was shaving in the shower one day, and I noticed I had a lymph node that presented on the left side of my neck near my uh, carotid artery. And it was really superficial. It was kind of like a little bean. So when I had turned my head to the right, I noticed it was there. And uh, just kind of was conscious of it. I told my wife about it. But at this point, I was totally asymptomatic, having no issues, still exercising, running, you know, pretty much daily at, at, with ease. Um, no reason to draw attention to my health at this point. So we kind of tracked it for a couple weeks. I remember we had went for Labor Day weekend on a trip to, um, to Destin, Florida, which we do each year with her family. And it had kind of increased in size a little bit. And this was after um, one round of antibiotics that my primary care physician had put me on to see if it would respond. And needless to say that it had not responded. So at this point, he sent me over to, a, um, to an ENT locally, one of my good friends, Justin Tenney, um, took care of me. He went ahead and tried a, a second round of antibiotics. And of course, knowing what we know now, it did not respond to the antibiotics. So he went on to do what's called a fine needle aspiration, and he took some cells out of the lymph node itself. And, and it's when we got that report back that it had showed it had some atypical cells in the fine needle aspiration. So Dr. Tenney, being the vigilant physician and surgeon that he is, he requested a full workup with a CT of my chest and abdomen region and also a full blood workup um, at the hospital because what he wanted to do is gather as much information as he could prior to me going to surgery to have the biopsy and have the lymph node removed the following morning. Well, when they ran the CT test, I had another friend here. So it's good about staying where you grew up. You have a lot of people in, in good places here. Um, Dr. Jay Fake was on staff as a radiologist, and he's the one that read my CT scan and actually called me that night to let me know that, you know, we were probably looking at some form of lymphoma because I had a mass in my thymus, which is kind of in your mediastinum area, which is near the center of your chest, and I also had some uh, lymph nodes that were involved in various places throughout my, my chest region and in my axillary region under my armpit. So it was kind of at that moment where... It was kind of a shock. You know, you don't think I'm 37 years old, uh, asymptomatic. You don't think that cancer is in your future. But we, we went through the realization after that phone call of knowing what we were up against. And then the next morning, I went into surgery and had the, the lymph node removed. And it was sent off to pathology. And then five days later, which was probably the longest five days of my life, we got a definitive diagnosis back that it was indeed Hodgkin's lymphoma, which for those that don't know much about lymphoma, it's probably the most favorable type that you could have. And my oncologist even told me that if he had to choose what type of cancer that he would get in his lifetime and he was a male, he would pick Hodgkin's lymphoma. So we had some, you know, after the initial shock and disbelief and going through the the agonizing of what, what was going on in my body, we had some encouraging news uh, once we got the definitive diagnosis. Mm. Would you say that you've always been a prayerful person, and did you become more prayerful after the diagnosis? You know, I think that going through your life, 
you know, when you're in college and in post-college and starting a family, God always had, had a presence in my life. But that was one of the moments where you kind of turn to him a little. I'm going to be honest and say that, you know, during that time, that was that was one of the things that became a more focal point in my life was my relationship with God. Can you talk more about that? I think it was trying to have more of a relationship with him and talk to him a little bit more. And, and also, it really put into perspective what's important in life and what isn't. Um, you talk about a sobering and grounding experience for sure. But just kind of, you know, getting back on, on what we went through there after the diagnosis was made, then I had to sit down with an oncologist and come up with a treatment plan on what the protocol was to, to beat the disease that I had. And that included um, going through chemotherapy eight treatments. So I had a port put in and um, my first treatment was on October 2nd, 2017. And uh, it was about a four and a half hour session. I would go sit in the cancer center and have, have antibiotics pumped into me. When I was done with treatment, I would go to work in the afternoon and I, and I never missed a day throughout the whole treatment. And the, the, the research that was done on Hodgkin's, they had pretty much a foolproof system that would beat it. And the chemotherapy that I went through was a series of drugs called ABVD with AB and adromycin. Uh, most people refer to that drug as the red devil. It's the one that you'll see breast cancer patients go through. And uh, it causes you to lose your hair. And that was, believe it or not, the biggest fear that I had through this whole process was not if I was going to beat it. I knew I was going to beat it. I was losing my hair because then I had to explain to my kids that I was ill. And that's one of the things I really didn't want to do. So we fast forward after my fourth treatment, which was November 30th, I had an interim PET scan. And at the halfway point, the PET scan revealed that I was in total remission, that the disease was no longer in my body, which was probably one of the happiest days of my life, for sure. I remember my wife and my mom being there, um, giving them the news. And that was that was awesome. Um, but the, the research said you needed eight treatments. So even though I had beat it, I had four more chemotherapies to get through. And chemo is kind of one of these things where it snowballs on you. The further you go through it, the more fatigued you get. So, you know, I, I pride myself on saying that I honestly never missed a day at work throughout my entire therapy. But it was at the end of the day when I would get home where I was whipped. I mean, I would just go on the couch and... I was really no help with Lindsay and the kids, um, but my parents were very instrumental, my father-in-law, on pitching in and, and helping out. So my last treatment was on January 16th of 2018, and that was my eighth one, and that was the end of my therapy. You know, there was talks with the literature that radiation was kind of a possibility based on my initial mass size, which... Anything over 10 centimeters on your initial mass, they kind of push for you to do radiation. Um, my mass was 9 centimeters by 5 centimeters, so I was kind of under the threshold to where it was kind of a coin flip. Um, and I sat down with Dr. Dang, who's the radiation oncologist here in Thibodeau, who's our age. Um, and he was very sympathetic to, to the fact of knowing where I was in my life. And my third child was born, my baby girl, Laird, on December 29th, which was only two weeks before my last treatment. And we kind of weighed all the pros and cons of everything. And we decided after 
a lot of prayer and a lot of research that we were going to forego radiation because of the side effects and the, and the ill effects down the road in life of, of what could present from the area that they were going to give it, which is near the heart and lungs. And that was probably the best decision I ever made because fast forward to today, I'm two years, still in remission, no signs of the disease in my body, and I got put off for six-month blood work with my oncologist uh, with an annual CT scan. So we're just extremely grateful and blessed about the the outcome of of what we went through did you at any point google what the life expectancy was for what you were going through well you know as much as they tell you not to they're not going to stop me from trying to get gather as much information about this as i could um i have a classmate of mine that that went through a similar issue when we were sophomores in high school buddy lede he was a very very instrumental part of uh my psychotherapy through all this and being, being someone that I can talk to, uh, Buddy was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is in the same family, but a different different strand. And uh, Buddy's been in remission ever since he was 16 years old. So fast forward 24 years later, um, he's a success story. And if you look at everything that I looked at, the survival rate was extremely high. So everything based on what I had was very reassuring all the research that I did. Mm, I bet you spent a lot of time on WebMD, huh? I did. And and one thing that I got to give a shout out to Lindsay, my wife. She was uh she was kind of a warrior through this whole process. She she did more research than me and and she was awesome. But you, you were asymptomatic. Does that mean you had no pain or discomfort of any kind? Zero. And from what my oncologist told me is that if the lymph node that presented in my neck would not have Eventually, I would have become symptomatic as the tumor grew in my chest region, shortness of breath, pain, stuff like that. But it was a blessing that it made it made its way to that one lymph node um, that drew our attention. Um, not that Hodgkin's wouldn't be beatable even if it was stage four. Um, I was considered stage 2A, 2 being that it was in multiple regions confined to above the diaphragm, and A stands for asymptomatic. But the success rate of those and the survival rate of those even with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma is very favorable. Buddy Lede is a great dude. He's awesome. I've known him for a long time. Uh, so he was your psychotherapist. What did you do to maintain your energy levels throughout the day? Did you increase your caffeine intake or did they give you anything to help? So when you go through chemo, they'll, they'll give you a heavy dose prior to your therapy of some steroids and some anti-nausea medication and through research and technology medicine is is great what buddy went through to what i went through years ago is night and day he had a 13-month protocol that he had to go through at children's hospital because he was under 18 years old and Thibodeau wouldn't treat him uh he was considered a pediatric case and the therapies that they had back then it was a 13-month therapy Whereas mine, you look at it, it was two months until I was in remission. And then another two months for the back end of the treatment. So where they've gotten to, he was sick as a dog. I was never sick. They gave me a script of Zofran. I remember one day in between my seventh and eighth treatment, and this was probably just an isolated event. And I got nauseous probably from something I ate, not even chemo, but I took literally one Zofran the entire time I went through chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So as far as maintaining my um, energy levels, when the fatigue set in, towards the back end of treatment, I was very, very conscious of trying to get at least 9 to 10 hours of sleep at night so I can still come to work in the morning. At this point, I was not exercising. I was like, what's the point? Uh, you're only going to make your body more stressed. And I knew I would get back to it at some point once the therapy was over. 
But to kind of answer your question, I was conscious of what I was eating, what I was putting in my body to try and get more fuel and, and, and making sure I, I stayed, you know, maintaining my level of hours of sleep that I needed each night. Do you feel a little untouchable now in terms of the mental strength that you maybe didn't know that you had until you went through this? I wouldn't say completely untouchable because we all know that we're human. But from that aspect, I feel like there's no hurdle on the back end of my life. I'm going to be 40 next month um, that I can face outside of, I'd say, death, um, whether it's me or a family member that's close to me that's going to present that I know I can't get through. I love that. And you're a very busy man. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 is the least stressed and 10 being the most stressed you've ever been. Like, How stressed were you then and how stressed are you now? It was a different stress then. Um, it was more of a physical stress then when I was going through it. Um, now that I'm, that I'm over that and we're in full swing with the life that we're living right now with three young kids and the extracurriculars... It's more of a mental stress, which I welcome. Mm. Um, my wife always tells me how mentally tough I am. And I'm one of these guys that just likes to win the day. And I'm a list person. I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and write my list for the day. I don't put it in my phone. I actually have a hard copy that I can scratch it off. She gets a little perturbed with me because I started writing her a list <laughs> for the day in the morning. Do you have a different perspective of stress in terms of knowing what's in your control and what's not in your control now? Certainly. And you kind of let the things that are not in your control not bother you nearly as much. And so you send your kids to Catholic school just as you went to Catholic school, right? That's correct. So I have three kids. My middle child is Red. He's my second son. He's in what's called YK at St. Genevieve. It's a young kindergarten. Let's talk about young kindergarten because when I moved to Houston in eighth grade, they had this transition period from kindergarten to first grade. And it seemed to give every kid my age, or at least what should have been my age, an advantage in sports. We didn't have that in Louisiana. My best friends were all born in 79. I was born in 80. They're a full year older than me. And in terms of development for sports purposes, they had a huge advantage over me. So are you saying that Thibodeau, Louisiana, has something like that now? So St. Genevieve has had the YK program. It's been there for quite some time. Um, St. Joseph, which is the other Catholic school here in town, used to offer which was called a DK, which was developmental kindergarten. And for whatever reason, kids started getting teased because DK turned into dumb kids or dumb kindergarten. And the school itself decided to do away with that. That's interesting. So the parents were concerned about their kids being perceived as dumb because they were held back. But the dads are probably like, I don't care. Toughen up. Absolutely. We're, we're doing it as an investment for 10, 15 years from now. Absolutely. When they'll have a leg up in sports. So, so to put it into perspective... My boys are both summer babies, June and July birthdays, and the difference in St. Genevieve offering a YK, which they do thorough testing, and it's done by the book. Um, as a parent, you can give your recommendation on what you would like to see them decide for you, but if there's no reason from a social, emotional, or intellectual standpoint to put them in YK, they won't. They'll put them in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. um, but the advantage of having the boys there in the summer is that emotionally, boys are a little bit more immature than girls at that age, and they take all that into account. And I kind of gave my blessing that I wouldn't have an issue with them doing YK. 
and it worked out for both of them. And just to fast forward, when they become going into their senior year, they'll turn 18, like you were talking about, where you graduated and didn't turn 18 until the summer after. So they're going to graduate, you know, at almost 19 years old, which just from uh, intellectual, emotional, athletic standpoint, it's huge. I, I, and, and life's not all about sports. We know that. But let's be honest. You had an opportunity to play college baseball. A small, small, small percentage of high school athletes go on to play at the next level. But if they can have an advantage to where they can excel and have some fond memories of their high school years, what's the harm in it? Well, not only is there no harm in it, but we didn't even ask each other, how old are you? So nobody knew that I was a year behind. I, I have so many examples. When I went to ninth grade, the quarterback of our class was born in sep uh, December of 78. I was born in June of 80. He was a full year and a half and a month, so 19 months older than me. He had sideburns like Jason Priestley. He was, he was just so mature. He was driving, but it gave him such an advantage. Um, he ended up being, as a senior, one of I think he was the first team all-district quarterback, which in Houston is, is saying quite a bit in the Cy Fair School District. He went on to play at Henderson State and Texas State, which was Southwest Texas at the time. Joseph Smith is his name. I graduated in 1998 at 5'9", 140 pounds, my senior year. If you fast forward to the summer after my freshman year of college, I was six foot 165. I grew three inches and gained 25 pounds in a year. So that's just, that just goes to show you there. Well, the timing of that, if you had gotten it between junior and senior year, there's Certainly. no telling. Certainly. Certainly. So do you coach your kids' sports teams now? I do. The good thing about the schedule is that the sports seasons, without doing any kind of competitive travel sports season, is my boys pretty much are free of sports obligations in the summer, which is the months of June and July. And with no schoolwork, it allows us to really spend some quality time with them in the summers. And I would think a lot of unstructured playtime, which is important, which is what we had. That's exactly right. Where there's no bedtime uh, within reason, because you don't have to wake up for school, but you can just get out there and live life and, and make friends and, and, and just cut it up. At what age should kids decide which sport they want to stick with, do you think? I think where you went to high school, being in a huge city and having a tiered program as far as high school we're going to an extremely big high school where it's kind of unrealistic for kids to play multiple sports in high school uh, because the coaches' mentalities, I'm sure you can elaborate on that, is they kind of want all of you uh, for that sport. And, and we see it in New Orleans when you look at some of the bigger Catholic schools like Jesuit, etc. They kind of segment what those kids are going to do unless you're phenomenal at everything. But the benefit of staying here in Thibodeau is they, you still have your three-sport athlete and it allows them to play stuff year-round. To get back to your question, I'm going to let him play everything until he tells me he does not want to play something. And and that'll be the time that we, you know, make a decision on what to remove from his his scheduling. And it's up to him. He can play all everything until he gets to a point to where number 1 he either doesn't have to play it or number 2 he's not good enough to play it. What is your opinion of the travel ball craze that's going on right now? That's a good question. I don't know if I'm in the minority when it comes to this or just a lot of people hold their tongues when it comes to this. I don't foresee any reason why kids should play travel baseball because that's primarily the sport that's involved until they're at least 11 or 12 years old. 
I don't see the need for it until there's a reason to where the rec opportunities in the city are diluted and then you start getting a little bit behind the bullet when it comes to competition that you're facing. Mm -hmm. But to say that these kids that are playing travel t-ball and travel coach pitch to me and travel machine pitch, you're not getting behind the bullet because it's not like you're facing competition that's superior to you because whether you're in a rec league or you go and spend all this money to stay in hotels and travel with uniforms, you're facing the same coach that's pitching, you're hitting off the same tee, you're hitting off the same machine. I just don't feel the need for it. And to go even further on that, I read an article that Dr. James Andrews po published. I'd say last year, injuries he used to see in college athletes, he's seen in 14- and 15-year-old kids just because of the overuse of the arms. Because it's one thing to play travel baseball if it's confined to a season and a limited number of games and a limited number of pitch count. But you have some of these kids that are playing, they'll start in February and they'll play through October. And that's longer than a major league season. That's true. And some of these kids, from what I understand, are burned out by the time they get to high school and don't even play high school ball. That's right. Nichols' is head coach, as you know very well, Seth Thibodeau, has already told me behind the scenes that he's had some guys that are on full rides that, that looked at him and, and honestly told him that they had lost a desire for the game, that they were burnt out. This is kids that are 19 years old, 20 years old. Could you imagine? You played at Nichols. It was some of the best days of your life. Could you imagine saying that you don't want to play the game that you knew you were only going to play for a couple more years? I cannot imagine. Do you know Clint Joffreon? I do know Clint. He has a nephew who was playing at UL Lafayette last year as a freshman. I don't know how much playing time he got, but he decided to hang him up after his first year at UL. And that's something that Clint and I cannot relate to. And I'm sure that's a product of how long he's been doing it and to the level and, you know, the amount of games that he's played to where it's, you know, to use a lack of a better word, they're burnt out. Yeah, it's crazy, especially seeing how far the programs have come in terms of the field condition and the equipment and the there's, uniforms. There's a ton of, there's a ton of money to be made um, as far as the, the travel baseball circuit around here. When we got out of college and there was really nothing competitively for us to play, we, we took up softball. That was a I played softball for 10 years competitively after college until Lane was born, and then I kind of kind of got away from it there. But U-Triple-S-A was the organization that was throwing all of these tournaments, and it became a monopoly, and it became a money racket. They would, they would get enormous amounts of money throwing these tournaments. And then that, when so the softball got diluted around South Louisiana because of how unsafe the bats were getting and the illegal tampering and all that. And people just realizing that it wasn't worth it to go out there and get hurt. Um, they turned their focus and saw an opportunity with the younger kids through travel baseball. So nowadays, if, if you're a travel baseball team, everything goes through U-Triple-S-A. And it's an extreme money-making racket that they're running. What they do is they tier it to where there's different levels. You may be single A, double A, triple A, uh, minors, majors, um, and it's all a point status system to where the more tournaments and wins you, you achieve, the higher points you get, which in turn gets you better seedings in these tournaments. So it's kind of like a, an addiction, per se, to where the coaches and parents are not seeing the 
true picture of why they're out there. But some of these guys are trying to achieve the success with their kids, for lack of better words, that they never achieved as athletes. One of the things your dad and I were talking about recently is the prosperity of our times and how that enables you to get access to minor league and even former major league players. When you and I were coming up, we couldn't get a big leaguer to coach us if we wanted to. I don't know where they were, but I can tell you that the same thing happens in Houston. A lot of my friends' kids are getting private lessons and tutoring coaching from guys who spent a lot of years playing pro baseball that would have been so helpful to me because typically the only coaches i had access to were just other guys dads who played high school ball and that was it you really don't learn that much when you're just playing high school ball and you have a football coach masquerading as a baseball coach so would you agree that it's it's a product of or a byproduct of people making more money nowadays that they can pay for that sort of thing, including travel ball? You hit it spot on. I think that the elevation in the cost of what it costs to play travel ball and the fundraisers that these teams are throwing to be able to get through a season and to talk about what you mentioned with the professional athletes, there's a facility in Baton Rouge right there an hour away called Traction that Mac Chewilly is very instrumental in starting and maintaining, and he and he got involved with a couple of Ryan Terrio and a couple of guys that played major league, and one of our good buddies, Jacob Lusky, his son Cooper, who's Lane's age, um, is affiliated with their program at Traction, and he gets to, you know, I don't know how hands are they, hands on they are with the younger age groups, but he definitely gets to see how that program is and have some interaction as opposed to just saying like. My neighbor's dad is coaching me. There has been a elevation of coaching in those programs. And the numbers are so, so high, though, just across the state, as far as how many of those kids are doing it, that there is some sort of a reality check when they get to junior high ball. But you'll see how you have eight guys that all played shortstop on eight different travel ball teams mm -hmm. and they're getting rings for coming out second place in these tournaments and then they'll get to a level where they have to represent a school and put a name on their chest and only one can play shortstop so in some ways if you're doing it for the right reasons and you're limiting their reps and they're playing better competition and it's truly in your heart to have your son get better at the game I'm all for it but at some point, you're setting them up for failure and the misconception uh, that's going to happen when they're competing against guys at a school. What do they say about kids in terms of working out with weights and throwing curveballs? Is there a designated A or a universal standard nowadays that people are saying? That you know, when we played, it was you couldn't throw a curveball until 13, which if you just kind of look at an average age, most kids are starting to mature and their bodies are growing by age 13. So that was kind of a safe number. For whatever reason, it seems like kids are maturing earlier these days. Um, but I would still say that that 12, 13-year-old mark is a good number. Mm. Now, are they doing it out there at 11 and 10? I would say yeah. And it goes back to the fact that you may have guys coaching kids that maybe don't know enough about it. And I believe we started working out with weights in the fall of our eighth grade year. That's exactly right. My first interaction with, with really having some instruction with weight training was my eighth grade year. I want to talk about your career because you are a dentist, correct? That's correct. How much can you tell about a person by looking inside their mouth? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, you can tell a good bit. 
I can make assumptions on how their room looks, how their bathroom looks, and stuff like that, <laughs> looking at their mouth. One of the things for me is uh, I was always a teeth guy. I always, and, and dentistry was not in my future. I had, I have no family member that was ever a dentist. Um, as far as my educational journey, I wanted to be a doctor. I looked up to my sister um, from an educational standpoint. I respected how good of a student she was and how studious she was. And she was a couple years ahead of me, and she went off to LSU, and she did everything she was supposed to do and graduated in four years, and she got accepted her first time in the medical school and went up to Shreveport. And now she's a successful OBGYN here in town. We're 16 months apart. So to say that dentistry was something that I had focused on and I had a plan to, to become a dentist, that that is so far from the truth. <laughs> It wasn't until I graduated at LSU and took the MCAT and probably made a slightly above average score in the MCAT. I graduated uh, with like a 3.8 at LSU, so GPA was there, and interviewed at New Orleans and Shreveport and got put on the waiting list in, in Shreveport, which means that I had to wait and see up until a month before uh, students set foot on campus to see if I was going to be in for that fall um, right after right after I graduated in 2002 and I got a letter in the mail saying that they didn't have a spot for me which from an academic standpoint that was the first time in my life that I had failed academically and it, I took that very hard I remember just kind of being in disbelief and being like this is there's no way this is not what was supposed to happen you know I was supposed to get into school and and become a doctor this is what I always wanted to do so being the persistent guy that I am, I set up a meeting with the dean of students in Shreveport and drove up there and sat down with him and met with him for probably an hour in his office. And I told him to give me a blueprint on what I needed to do because I'd already graduated at LSU. I was moving back home to Thibodeau with my parents uh, when I didn't get into school. Tell me what I needed to do to, to get in for next year. And he said, well, what if I were you, it always looks good to stay in school. And then I reapplied to Shreveport for the following year. And for whatever reason, I got a rejection letter. And I found out that one of my friends, an undergrad who's a minority, ended up getting accepted into the Shreveport School of Medicine with inferior numbers, GPA and MCAT score. So it went from disbelief and disappointment to bitterness and resentment. And I kind of turned my focus away from, from medicine for a while. I was laying bricks, believe it or not, doing hard labor back home, earning cash money, living at home with no bills. Um, this is from when I was about 22 to 24 years old, those two years. And my grandfather, my dad's dad, who's known as Checkerboard, I'm sure you remember my grandfather. Mm -hmm. He was 90 years old at this time. And my parents and I would cut his grass for him in the summers whenever we'd get, you know, need weekly cutting. And I specifically remember sitting down with him one afternoon after mowing his lawn and sitting on some rocking chairs on his back porch. And for whatever reason, he asked me that day if I ever considered dentistry. He was like, you know, you go with your hands. You wanted to do something in the medical field. And I honestly looked at him and said, no, but thank you for asking. <laughs> so it was at that point that I really turned my focus into trying to get into dental school. So I went ahead and, and applied to dental school, which most people don't know. There's only one dental school in the state. So the competition to get into dental school 
is extremely more competitive than to get into medical school because LSU offers a couple schools in New Orleans and Shreveport where they may have 300 plus students that get in each year. Um, whereas dental school is more of a high school environment. They only take 60 kids a year. So applying to dental school, um, the fact that I was three years removed from graduating undergrad and getting in on my first try, I just look at it as this was the path I was meant to go down. So that was, that was kind of how dentistry came into play in, in my life. It was just a simple suggestion from my grandfather. The bitterness and resentment that you felt after being rejected from medical school is something I want to talk about because I faced a very similar situation. After I finished college, I was taking real estate classes. Meanwhile, I was digging ditches for about 10 bucks an hour, actually digging trenches for termite treatments. So Physical he, labor, like I was laying bricks. <laughs> that's it, right? You get your degree and you think you're going to start making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000, and that is not how it usually happens. You move in with your parents and you, Touché. you just have no idea how you're ever going to be able to afford a house and support a family. But the issue that I faced I, at these real estate classes that I was taking, they had a Rangers, Texas Rangers scout in my class. He was taking real estate classes. And he said that he was getting out of scouting. And I said, oh, how long have you been a scout? And he said, well, the, for the last four years, I've been in the South Texas, Louisiana region. And so I mainly scouted like the Southland Conference. And I said, well, I played in the Southland Conference. And he said, oh, where did you go to school? And I said, Nickel State. He said, oh, number three. And I said, yeah, that was me, man. Why didn't you guys pick me up? You should have drafted go me. Ahead. And he says, well, there was a kid that we were looking at out of Texas, San Antonio. His name is Phil Gentry. And I said, yeah, Phil Gentry and I played on the same summer team. And that guy was my backup. He was not as fast as me, not even close. Did you question his evaluation of talent at that point? <laughs> well, I asked him, I, Phil Gentry was a black guy. Okay. And I said, do you think that him being black had something to do with him being drafted and me not being drafted? And he said, absolutely. He said that they project better as having potential for playing in the big leagues than a young white guy does. And so, yeah, it was... Do they feel like they haven't been refined enough uh, based on their upbringing per se and their opportunities that maybe you had an opportunity to experience or was his reasoning for that just based on their longevity and their and their productivity as they age well that's a good point maybe when viewing me he saw potential already fulfilled whereas this guy was not yet developed but i knew him he actually came from a yeah, family was, and and had all of that but i guess they're generalizations that they make as scouts well, and percentages, right? I mean, if you had to play the odds of whether or not a, a black kid was going to play center field for the Milwaukee Brewers or a white kid, it's probably you would bet on the, the darker horse. You, you would lean to that, that way. That's correct. Yeah. So I think they were probably playing the odds. But uh, this is I've, – I've never shared this story. But when I was about 27, I was in Dallas for a conference, and I had just bought my first sports car. And I pulled up to a restaurant on Saturday night, and guess who was parking my car? Phil Gentry. No way. I swear to God. He said, man, what, what are you doing now? And I was like, well, I got into software, and I, I do some real estate investing. And he was like, no shit, man. Can, can we exchange numbers? And he, he parked my car. He wanted to know how he could make money. So he lasted a few years in the minor leagues, which I probably would have too. Sure. But that was one of those uh, 
moments that made me smile inside. Absolutely. <laughs> that is a great story. That is a great story. He was a good player. The reason, one of the reasons he got picked up was because their third baseman was a high draft pick. I think he went in the sandwich round between first and second, uh, the first and second rounds. So they had eyes on their games, for sure. Oh, yeah, and that yeah. helps so yeah, much. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah. Um, but as far as getting back to uh, to the dentistry, um, you know, my freshman year, which was 2005, I start dental school. We report on July 26, 2005. Let's fast forward 33 days. Katrina. Um, Katrina. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, here we are, right off of 610, and we're in school for a month. Here comes Katrina, and the school takes on five feet of water, and it's totally condemned from an environmental standpoint, and they ship off all the medical students and dental students to Baton Rouge. Thankfully for me, it was my freshman year, and the first pretty much year and a half of dental school is strictly books. Um... Not much patient interaction, so we can study pretty much anywhere. Um, and one of our good friends, Jacob Lusky, was living in Baton Rouge. He had a home, a three-bedroom three house, and he had a couple roommates in there helping him with the rent. And he took me in, which was awesome because the majority of my classmates that did not have any connections in Baton Rouge had to live on a cruise ship that they brought in, and they docked it by the bridge in Baton Rouge on the river. And they would provide transportation each day to and from the temporary campus that they had set up at Pennington Biomedical Research Center. So those guys were living basically in cruise bunkers, whereas I was living in a three-bedroom home. I spent two years in Baton Rouge, and then whenever they got us back into New Orleans and they had totally redid with FEMA money the dental school, it was state-of-the-art technology. So I'm here I am coming into my junior year when really you start taking a clinical focus in your schooling. And all the equipment was digitized and just basically the latest and greatest. So my two years of clinical practice in dental school, I was using all the same materials that I'm using currently today, which was a, I benefited from an educational standpoint due to Katrina. Mm. I was one of the few that probably can talk about a bright spot from that storm. Do you ever feel like your job is incredibly easy? And the reason I ask that is because my dentist in Houston, after the dental hygienist would do her thing, he would come in for about 10 seconds, look inside my mouth, and say, looks good. And that was it. And I thought, I can't believe this guy makes so much money. (laughs) (laughs) So, obviously, you're a good patient because you just go for your six-month checkups and probably never need work because you have good dental hygiene. But a lot of six-month patients don't see what we do outside of those hygiene rooms. So, you have your six-month patients that will come in twice a year that listen to you. And do what they're supposed to do and brush and floss and come see you every six months, right? So if there's ever a minor issue, it's it's taken care of. And it, and it doesn't lead to, to major issues. But what you don't see is that while the hygienists are cleaning your teeth, we're working on other people's teeth. Mm. So you, it, you do go in and do your hygiene checks, which I like to say mine are a little bit longer than 10 seconds looking in your mouth. We do oral cancer screenings and stuff like that. You're looking at the soft tissue, doing a little bit of but all of that while you're in there. You're looking at x-rays. And you're just giving them the assurance that everything's okay and we'll see you again in six months. But on the other side of the office, uh, when I took you through and showed you, we have some operatories where we actually do dentistry. And that's going on during all these cleaning appointments. So to say that it's a, um, an easy job to answer your question, 
I, I would call it more of a, a fulfilling job. I love helping people, getting them healthy, uh, even if it's on a scale of just in the mouth and the oral cavity. I like doing cosmetic work and seeing the before and afters of those. It's very re rewarding when you see a patient just really smile based on what you've done for them. So yeah, so there's more to it than just hygiene checks, but it's it's physically it's not a hard job. Mentally, it's not a hard job if you surround yourself with good people. I have the same staff that I that has been here since I started as an associate in 2009 out of dental school. I went in and worked for uh, Dr. Robert Foray, who was one of the uh, more prominent local dentists here in town, and he took me in as an associate. I worked for him for six years as an associate and, and increased my practice in his practice, per se, my patient pool, um, until... In October of 2015, we kind of put our heads together and got an expert to come in and evaluate the practice, and I bought it from him. And we just kind of flipped roles to where he was an associate for me, and he's still an associate for me as we're speaking today. He works three days a week, um, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays at his leisure, sees the patients that he wants to see. His home's right down the street from my new office, um, so he kind of likes what he's doing. And I wouldn't trade our relationship professionally that we have for the world. The staff that we currently have today is 90% of the same staff when I started in 2009. So it's very rare to have a dental office with as little turnover, turnover as we have. Do you market yourself much? So we have a Facebook page that uh, my wife handles. We have a website. We really don't solicit business. Coming, being born and raised from Thibodeau, um, I know a lot of people in this town. We pride ourselves on just doing ethical, good dentistry. Who's your biggest competitor? Uh, I'd say there's a few, but there's enough people in Thibodeau with the amount of dentists that we have for everybody to kind of do what they need to do. Um, Does it hurt your feelings when somebody close to you, somebody that you grew up with, goes to another dentist? You know, I've, I've kind of gotten past that. <laughs> we live in a capitalistic uh, world, and there's free enterprise, and... And, I, and what I try and do is turn it on myself and say, well, hey, I do insurance with this guy, but I could do it with this guy. Yeah. And, and I look at it that way. And I try and do business with personal friends. But if you have multiple friends, you know, it makes it tough. And, and I have some, some friends that I consider great friends that come see me. And, and their wives and kids may see someone else. Do you think it's rude for, for people to ask their friends for discounts? I would never do it in any aspect of my life. I would welcome it if I had a, I have several professionals that are friends that treat me with that courtesy since I'm a professional. And we may give each other professional discounts per se. Um, but we're a fee-for-service practice, which means we charge what we charge. We file to all insurances. So if you're left with a balance after the procedure, you are billed for it. Now, I do have some guys that are in my inner circle that are labeled as insurance only on their charts. Um, but we're going to keep that private. <laughs> I don't feel like if you have to ask me for a discount, I feel like if you're, if you're that close of a friend to me, it's going to already be offered to you. Do you clean false teeth? <laughs> so I do do a lot of removable uh, procedures. I do dentures and partials and uh, implant over dentures and stuff like that. We do have patients that will come in that may have some sort of um, removable prosthesis, whether it's a denture or a partial, that when they're getting the remaining natural teeth clean, we'll run it through a, a, an ultrasonic and clean it for them. Um, so to answer your question, I don't directly clean them, but my assistants do. 
a lot of older guys are doing false teeth or veneers nowadays. Like Joe Biden probably has veneers, right? Yeah, you can tell. Donald those, Trump. Those guys, absolutely. That's all. That's all. Veneers are full coverage crowns, and it, and it and some of it could have been back in the day that they needed stuff for for reasons of of decay or or, or disease. But when they get to the pocketbook level that they have. It's nothing for them to go and say, hey, let's do full mouth rehab and go ahead and put porcelain crowns on every tooth because you can go as, as white as you want and those guys are in the, the camera. And I've, ne- I've never met someone in my life that said they didn't appreciate a good smile. And they're infectious. They are infectious. How much does something like that cost, a rehab of the mouth? So most, most adults will have a total of 28 teeth in their mouth. We have 32 permanent teeth. Most most people lose their wisdom teeth and get them taken out at some point. So just ballpark. I don't want to give away our disclosed fees. Um, but any single unit crown can go from anywhere to 1000 to 1500 depending on where you're practicing. So you can multiply that times 28. And you can look at maybe a middle tier automobile. Wow. I imagine your income fluctuates from year to year, right? Uh, it's been pretty, pretty a slow climb, which is what we want. And some of that is due to we'll look at inflation and try and do a 3% increase on our free fees every every couple of years. And one of the main things that you try and do being a professional is you want to try and be honest and fair to your patients. And if insurance is going to be paying a little bit more on certain procedures each year as time goes on due to inflation, then rightfully you can increase your prices and kind of stay at that level. Have I told you that my wife and I go to Mexico to get dental work done? This is the first I hear of that. So we were quoted about $1,200 for dental work and went to the area where we got married, Playa del Carmen, mm-hmm. and just visited a doctor. My wife speaks Spanish and got a quote, and it was right around $85 for the same work. Wow. I've been there about three times for dental, little cleanings or whatever. Uh, the last time we went, since we didn't have our Mexican resident card, they tried to charge us double, and we weren't having it, so we went to another dentist there that we liked. Uh, she had a wisdom tooth pulled recently. It cost about $200 for the entire thing. So you can actually take a vacation to Playa del Carmen or Cancun. And come out cheaper with dental care. Yes. And go out somewhere locally. <laughs> yes. Well, this is on the record. I'm going to assure you that if you're ever in the area and you guys need any dental care, you're welcome here, and I'm going to take care of you. <laughs> My man. Yeah, I was telling her, too, we were at the Mardi Gras parade, and one of the girls was sharing very personal information about what she was going through with her kid and the kid watching pornography and just giving us intimate details of her life. And so I explained to my wife later, I said, you got to understand, her last name starts with an F. My last name starts with a D. You know how much time we've spent together in classrooms because she sat directly (laughs) behind me? I mean, she feels like a sister to me, and it's the same way with you. I mean, when you spend so much time together playing sports and competing and winning from age 7 to 12, whatever, 7 to 13 probably, sure, you feel a connection to someone like they're a brother. Yeah, there's a bond there. There's no doubt. Yeah, I mean, when I found out you, you were that you had cancer i sent you a text like let me know if there's anything you need but what i mean by that is like it's kind of like when you tell a brother you love him it's like i wish i could take your place i mean i know you have three kids 
that's how I feel when I found out. I'm like, man, I wish it was me and not you. I mean, sure. that's that's the connection you feel to people down here. And that's, that's sort of, I, I don't think that that's everywhere. It's certainly not where I grew up in Houston. It's not like that. And that's, I try to explain to people how special of a place this is. And it's probably what keeps me coming back again certainly. and again. Certainly. So it really is special. That is so true. That is so true. Uh, yesterday, the stock market dropped over 7%. Have you... Have, does that affect you at all? Have you made any new investments because there's a little bit of blood in the streets? Or how do you think about that? Let me give a shout out to one of my good friends, Jeremy Perk. What Jeremy did in 2015 when I bought the practice, he went ahead and sat down with me and showed me a blueprint of how we can set up a 401k plan through my office, through my small business, to where Lindsay and I can maximize our investing opportunities and also do a profit sharing and a company match for some of my employees that may not even electively contribute to a 401k. So we've watched this thing grow substantially in the, in the 16, 17, 18, in the four years that I've had it, taking aside what's going on now and the influence that obviously Trump has had on the stock market, I try and keep blinders on. Uh, I keep just pumping money into it. It's through a, a, a company called American Funds, which I know you're familiar with. I have a, a year when I turn 60, is, which is in 20 years from now. That is kind of a goal of mine to retire, which financially, it's going to be attainable and achievable. There's no doubt about it. I am going to wait and see what my three kids choose to do in their schooling and their decisions. No pressure, but if any one of those three are entertaining dentistry, then I'm going to stick around as needed uh, and some sort of presence to kind of mentor them a little bit, even if it's on a part-time basis, because they have an amazing opportunity to come in and take over their dad's practice. And you would pay for their entire undergrad dentistry school? So the way that it works is, as you know, I mean, I came from a middle-class family. Uh, likewise, I excelled in school in high school and I got a full ride to LSU and I also worked part-time in school to where I came out of undergrad basically debt-free. So my parents did not really have to pay for my undergrad education. When I decided to go to professional school, which was quite costly because you cannot work even though it's a state school, you're looking at four years of your life taking out probably 40000 a year and loans. I was just going to say how costly. Yeah. So I how many years? About 160,000 in debt Ooh. after dental school. And the deferral rate for someone that gra graduates dental school is less than 0.1%. Um, so these companies are there to give you the money to be able to pay for your schooling and also to be able to live while you're in school comfortably. My parents did not pay for my education for professional school. Neither did they pay for my sister's medical school. So fast forward. Uh, for my kids, I'd like to believe that they're going to be able to maybe receive some sort of educational opportunity from a scholarship in undergrad. Um, will I be willing to help them? I'm going to do what's fair based on their efforts and probably do the same across the board for all three kids. But when it comes to professional school, they're going to be on their own. They're going to be accountable to whatever they borrow to make sure they stay focused in school. That was a significant factor. Not that I was going to waver, but you always had that number that you were accumulating in the back of your mind to where you knew you had to mean business when you were in school. Sure. So do you still have that debt? We're 2020. I graduated in May of 2009, and I have just about 20000 left of the 160. Nice. Plans to play that off soon? Yeah, in the next couple of years. Uh, the rates that I have, I was a benefit 
of having extremely low professional funding interest rates and speaking with Jeremy and other people, it doesn't make sense to pay them off prematurely. Hmm. You ever think that financial advisors give you that kind of guidance because they're paid as a percentage of what's being invested with them? You know, that's in the back of your mind always. Uh, the reason that I chose Jeremy to deal with is because he's a personal friend and he stood my wedding. And I'd like to think that he has my interest first, which I know he does. What does he say about paying off your house? We haven't really gotten that far into it yet. Lindsay and I got married in October of 2009, October 17, 2009. And the day before we got married, I bought our first home. It's a three-bedroom home, two-bath, 1,400-square-foot living. You fast forward 10 years later with three kids. I mean, we are just busting at the seams in that home. Um, so we have, in the process of building our dream home right now, we're actually going to pour our slab tomorrow on our new home, uh, something that we're really proud of. But we endured uh, living in that home longer than most people in my profession would have uh, for several reasons. We knew I wanted to build a new office uh, that we're interviewing in right now prior. Nicest dentistry office I've ever been in. Appreciate it. We wanted to build that, which is my moneymaker, before I build my home, even though it's separate money. Did not want to go through the headache of doing two things at one time. And we also have a passion for traveling that staying in that home with that little mortgage allowed us to be able to travel substantially over the last 10 years, more so than we would have been able to if I would have just said, you know what, we're building a home five years ago. Because um, every year that goes by in my practice, it's growing and my income's growing and you know we're building our new home at the right time. Which place have you been that you recommend to other people? The BVI's for sure. That's British Virgin Islands. That's BVI's is the British Virgin Islands. Why? Um, the scenery and the people and just the laid-back atmosphere of the Caribbean and the cleanliness. And every time that we, we've went there, we've actually gotten on a catamaran with a chef and a captain and staying in these closed quarters with close friends of ours. And just hopped around island to island in the prettiest part of the world. Oh, that's awesome. And when I'm telling you, it is just heaven on earth. Mm. You don't have to worry about anything. Stress-free. They're waiting on you. The advantage of doing the catamaran is that you get to see multiple places. And the money that you're going to pay to do it on a boat as opposed to staying on some of these luxurious islands is significantly less. That's the only way that I would do it. Nothing better than island hopping, in my opinion. Nothing better. How long are you doing this? So we would do it for a week at a time, six, six or seven nights. And you taking the kids? So we have yet to take the kids. Okay, total cost for two people to do something like that. You can figure a thousand a day, so okay. about seven grand. Something that is definitely comparable <laughs> to going to Disney for a week with your family. Yeah. I mean, nowadays the prices are getting really high, and that's what my wife does. She's a certified court reporter. She's also taken on a secondary role two years ago which has really taken off as a travel agent with, say, Magical Vacation. She's into Disney and more, everything around the world. She does sandals and beaches and stuff like that. There's got to be a downside to living in a small town. Everybody knows your business. Everybody knows where you're going. Wasn't there a scandal when you and your wife got together when you first started dating? Was Were you dating somebody else or she was dating somebody else? Well, she, 
she she was involved in a prior relationship um, where she was engaged previously, but had broken it off. Um, and I was involved in a relationship as well. Um, and just we had kind of our paths had crossed at a certain time, and we just really couldn't stay away from each other. Mm, you knew she was the one. And she'll tell you that I did not know at that time, but something kept drawing me back to her mm. for sure. And looking back on it now, that was the best decision I ever made in my life. When you get older, it seems like whether or not a girl has a boyfriend seems to matter less. And I've shared this publicly on my blog that when I was in my 20s, I was cheated on twice by guys. Or I'm sorry, by guys. I was cheated on twice by girls who then went on to marry those guys. And those guys were in a better place than me financially. Uh, they were ready to settle down. I was not. They were probably more mature. I didn't really know them. But it, it made sense to me that 26-year-old me wasn't ideal for them. And I don't know what sort of situation y'all were in. I just remember... It makes sense a, to you now. Yeah, oh, in hindsight, definitely. Well, it's definitely hard to take sure. at that time. Well, we, never, we weren't used to defeat. Right. It makes you feel inadequate. Um, when you're in your 20s, you don't have much status in a, in, a, in a large city. Small town might be different. But you go on a date, and they don't know you from Adam. And so it's a different, I don't want to say skill set, but a different demeanor, a different way of handling interactions with women that you wouldn't need to to do if you were from a small town and everybody knows you yeah you're, you're definitely more under a microscope for sure yeah so i just remember hearing that there was some sort of friendship that was ruined because you were dating someone else she was dating someone else but in hindsight that would make a lot of sense to me too that you two knew that you were for each other and damn damn the boyfriend and girlfriend <laughs> it's happened to me and I'm just saying, in your 20s, that kind of shit happens a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well put. Let me ask you some fun, quick questions, and then we'll wrap up. On average, at what age would you say that kids stop believing in the tooth fairy? Seven. <laughs> On average, at what age do people get veneers? 30. <laughs> no shit? Oh, man. Full frontal. Well, this is the deal. 30 years old, most people are in, well in, if they've not gone into professional school, their profession and their career. And the ones that are really going to want to have veneers, it's probably because they're very unsatisfied with the way that their teeth look, which is a very small percentage of people nowadays. We grew up with fluoride in the water, where tooth decay was not nearly as prevalent as our parents. I mean, my mom and dad had silver fillings all in their teeth. Um for lack of the fluoride implementation in our community water. So tooth decay in general across the board is certainly down nowadays compared to what it was 50 years ago. There's no doubt about it. And that was the one chief reason why. So to say that someone, unless they really, 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 really have issues with tooth decay and lost tooth structure or spacing, which is not even an issue anymore because everybody gets braces, it's like you really have to have something majorly wrong. And the ones that are really displeased by 30 years old, they're going to fix it because they feel like it's affecting their personal life, their emotional life, their self-esteem, their career opportunities. 
so that's why I say 30. Now to sit here and tell you that people aren't coming to do it at 50 and 60, I'd be lying to you. Just an average age for someone that is has always had it on their mind and can probably afford to do it, that's a good age. You said everybody gets braces. When I needed braces was when I was going through the struggle with my parents and therefore yep. didn't get 11, braces. 12 years old. And yep. I, I needed them and I still actually need them. I have this uh, deal where I have an overbite at night. I grind at yep. night, right? Yep. And so I started wearing a mouth guard that I had made in Mexico. Yep. Still cost me two hundred dollars. How much does a mouth guard yeah. cost? So we char- charge two ninety here. It's, okay. a, it's a soft night guard. Um, so basically, it's an overbite. You're, you're probably more of an underbite, where most people in their sleep tend to thrust out their lower jaw to where you're going to be grinding on an edge to edge basis, where your upper central incisors are hitting against directly against your lower teeth, which is why you're going to be doing that grinding. Mm. Um, we see that all the time. Uh, people that are going to grind in their sleep, normally they have a normal bite when they're conscious. When you bite down on your back teeth, you have a general overlap where your upper teeth are supposed to overlap your lower teeth. Mm-hmm. But when people start this bruxism and this grinding, they tend to advance their mandible, which which will cause the teeth to hit end on per se. And that's where you'll get a lot of the destruction of the enamel. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, enamel fun fact for the listeners is the strongest substance in our body it's stronger than our bones the only thing that can wear down enamel is other enamel which means that if you're grinding your teeth without a medium in between you're going to deteriorate your enamel and once it's gone it's gone yeah i have an overbite to where i'm wearing out the back of my front upper teeth underneath yeah okay so the lingual the dental term is lingual side which is palatal of your upper central and lateral incisors are wearing down because of the forces that you're putting into that enamel that's on the back side of your upper teeth. And so I'll be wearing a mouth guard the rest of my life? Correct. You Maybe. should. If you want to preserve your tooth remaining tooth structure that you have outside of doing any kind of full coverage restoration, mm-hmm. like a cap or a crown, then the mouth the mouth guard will act as a medium to absorb the blow of the forces that you're putting against those upper teeth and kind of keep everything at a halt. It makes it hard to make out with my wife. (laughs) Well, you're not making out in your sleep. So I would say the last thing you need to do is just go pop that puppy in. (laughs) Who would win a governor's race between Ed Ogeron and Drew Brees? That is a great question. But Drew Brees would win. Mm, Why? Because I think statewide... He's more popular. Mm. Northern part of the state. How many years do you think he has left? Two. But I wouldn't bet against him. Your thoughts on Ogeron? Best thing that ever happened to LSU. Strong statement. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? Invest 80% of it. Give 10% to charity. And have the best damn time I could with the other 10%. <laughs> so $100,000, you can have the best damn time of your life. What would you do? I think it would be a sequence of events. I think we would we would travel a good bit over an extended period of time. Take a hiatus from work for maybe a couple months. Take a page out of your book <laughs> and, just, and just do that. But, I mean, obviously that's a fantasy world there. Um, I have young kids. I, there's no way I could do that. But just... While we're on this subject, on these on these quick notes, I do want to give a, a, a shout out to Lindsay and I's support system. My parents, my sister, my in-laws, my sister-in-law, 
there's no way we can travel as much as we did in the past without having the, the support of them watching our kids uh, while we're, we're going. I just wanted to throw that in there. Well, since you're doing that, I'll give a shout out to my parents who helped me a ton. While I started traveling in 2015, my dad would store my car. And then when I would arrive at the airport, I'd have to come back for a doctor's appointment or get a real estate done or something. He would pick me up in my car at the airport. And he was such, he and his wife, Roxanne, were such a big help to me. And even now, we got to visit Korea because my stepdad was working in Busan, South Korea. And so we got to stay there for almost a month, which saved us a ton of money. And we're even staying now in New Orleans with my mom. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we're homeless right now. So we stay for about a month at a time in different Airbnbs. So actually this month, we're saving a ton of money. From March 30th to July 7th, we're going to be in Europe. Some parts of Europe are quite costly. Sure, so, so is Airbnb pretty much worldwide right now? Pretty much. You have an opportunity to do a listing wherever you are? It's a godsend because we wouldn't be able to do this and immerse ourselves in different cultures the way we're doing and live like the locals if it wasn't for Airbnb. Maybe there would be something else. But if we had to rent hotel rooms everywhere we went, we wouldn't be able to afford it. We just were in Playa del Carmen, Mexico in January and February, most of February. And we were able to rent something for $1,200 a month that rents by the night for about $120. Wow. Quick math. That's 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is because <laughs> you're so sharp. And you have an outstanding memory for detail. Uh, how can people connect with you online? Is there anything that you want to promote? So I, my dental website is uh, www.roundtreedental.com. We also have a Facebook page under Roundtree Family Dentistry. I'm not a big social media guy, believe it or not. I really don't have much time in the day for it. But I, I do have a little Twitter handle. It's at Tree DDS for DDS for Dentistry. Really more of just informative reading on Twitter. I don't post often. Um, but I'm not, a, I'm not a real big social media guy. My email for the office is RoundtreeDental at gmail.com. And any kind of personal Listeners out there that want to reach out to a personal email to me, if you may not have it, it's DDS at gmail.com. Awesome. Brian, before we cut loose, I want to acknowledge your family too because they had a big – they were a big help to me at a time when I needed it most. Your dad coached our team, and you were a great friend to me, and I love your family, and I love you, man. Thank you for being on the podcast. Love you too, Bradley. It was great. Thank you. Friends, thank you for listening. I think this is the coolest gig in the world. I only get to do it because of you, and I appreciate you. So if you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. <laughs>